This is Hear Her Sports, and I'm Elizabeth Emery. This week's guest is Benita Fitzgerald Mosley, a gold medalist in the 100-meter hurdle from the 1984 Los Angeles Olympic Games. She was the second American woman and the first African-American woman to earn that medal. She was a member of the 1980 and the 1984 U.S. Olympic teams and alternate in 1988, a gold medalist in the 1983 Pan American Games, an eight-time national champion, and a 14-time NCAA All-American. She was named Sportsman of the Century by Potomac News, Top Female Sports Figure of the Century from Virginia by Sports Illustrated, and named Hurdler of the Decade of the 1980s by Track and Field News. I admit to being a little bit starstruck, certainly because of her gold medals, but also because she has been just as successful in business as she was in sport. Benita is a graduate of the University of Tennessee with a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering. She is currently the CEO of Laureus Sport for Good Foundation USA, with a mission to change the lives of youth and strengthen communities through the power of sport. In our conversation, we talk about Laureus, her previous work as USA Track and Field's Chief of Sport, where she led Team USA to 29 medals at the 2012 London Olympic Games. Even though we discuss a lot of serious stuff about the value of sport for kids and communities, it was actually really fun to have the opportunity to get into research and data about the powerful benefits of sports. Benita talks about how, in particular, girls benefit from participating in sports and what kind of support is needed for them, especially during the middle school years when they tend to drop out of sports significantly more than boys. Benita also shares her own current fitness regime and some thoughts about being an older athlete. Well, welcome, Benita. It's really, I'm so honored that you're here. And, you know, your accomplishments in track and field are so spectacular. But one thing that really strikes me is that after your competitive life, it seems like you became just as successful in business. So here's a sweeping question. How did that happen? Wow, that's a really good question. I was actually talking, I have a 19-year-old son headed to, to college in the fall. And I was talking to him this morning about about that a little bit. And I somehow found a knack of being able to help organizations go from good to great and sustain that even after I'm gone. And so I think it has something to do with the combination of this idea of being an athlete as trying to help others and organize achieve their personal best combined with I'm actually an engineer by degree and I was an industrial engineer and we're kind of always trying to, you know, make things more efficient, more effective, find a better uh, widget, if you will. And so the combination of skills, I think, has uh, enabled me to go into organizations, kind of survey the landscape, figure out strategies to take them from where they are to where they are hoping to go, kind of set that uh, collective vision for the organization and really be diligent about, you know, eating that elephant one bite at a time. And, you know, two or three years later, you look up and it's like, wow, we really made some progress here. And that to me is quite uh, fulfilling. And to be able to leave and go to the next thing and see behind me that an organization continues to thrive is even more fulfilling. One of the things I like that I read somewhere was just probably coming back to your engineering background is you're interested in data. Yeah. We, you know, talk about knowledge-based decision-making and data-driven strategies. And so you have to kind of know where you are before you can uh, 
chart a course for where you're trying to go. And the knowing where you are is understanding that current state. I mean, some people do, obviously, SWOT analysis, that helps. But I think understanding the landscape, uh, an organization like Laureus, who are you serving, how many, where are you serving them, and what impact are you having now, what impact are you trying to have, where are you trying to go, you know. And so as an athlete, you want to always be able to chart your progress, and that's what I loved about track and field, being an individual sport, is that if I shave a hundredth of a second off my time, but I didn't maybe place in the way or win the championship that I want to win, you can still feel a, a sense of pride that, okay, I ran faster than I did before, I jumped further than I did before. And for me, having understanding what my personal best is right now, or the organization's personal best is, and then what we're trying to get to and where I am on that continuum is helpful to me. And in business, people talk about uh, short-term wins all the time because they are kind of motivating to yourself and to your team to say, oh, okay, yeah, we're making some progress. And without data, you, you have no idea where you are or where you're going. It's interesting you brought up that you watched data when you were in track and field. That seems sort of progressive to me. I mean, because you were racing in the 80s. Is that that seems sort of pre-data of... Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Was that from your coach? Definitely from my coach and from the people around my coaches. So the guy named Dr. Ralph Mann, who's a biomechanist, and he helped me back in the 80s with all this, um, you know, kind of Star Wars kind of stuff. He had these force plates that he would have embedded into the track and could determine based upon that and certain other measurements how far away you're getting taken off and what force you're taking off to get to the hurdle and what force and angle you come off the hurdle with. And through his kind of science and, you know, data analysis, he determined what that ideal force and angle, foot angle and foot strike and speed of your foot, like how long does it stay on one side of the hurdle and how long does it stay on the other side of the hurdle to get you to the next hurdle quicker, right? Wow. Obviously, if you landed flat-footed and you collapsed, you know, as you came off the hurdle because you didn't have enough strength to stay on your toes, then you're going to spend more time going all the way down flat-footed, all the way back up, and then... Uh, that's time that you could be using to get to the next hurdle. So that same doc, uh, that same gentleman is an Olympic silver medalist in the 76 games, uh, maybe 72, either 72 or 76 games in the 400 hurdles. And he, so he's got the athlete knowledge, right? Now the PhD, he does work with golfers. And then when I got to USA Track and Field, he was one of the first guys I called. And I said, hey, Ralph, you know, what are you doing? Can you help me? Because we knew that science and sports science and sports medicine as a country have a treasure trove of information and, and uh, resources. And I wanted to bring those resources to bear to help our track and field team improve. And so that was one of the major strategies that we used to help win, you know, an unprecedented number of medals in, in London. And then they, they even bettered that in Rio using the same strategies. And, you know, so he has worked and continues to work with the USA track and field team to create, he has a model 
for sprinters and hurdlers and runners and jumpers. And he compares an athlete's performance to that model and is able to coach them to uh, make the, their technique more efficient and therefore perform better. And it, it was pretty miraculous, the results he had with the athletes he worked with on our team. That's so cool. I hadn't heard about that before. That's great. Yeah, look him up. He's, um, he's a pretty amazing guy. And we, he did some great work with uh, Carmelita Jetter that helped her a lot. And uh, they profiled it, I think, in the New York Times and in the Washington Post. Oh, great, great. I will look that up. Mm -hmm. Before I ask some more specific questions, what's important to you right now? What what gets you all fired up? In my work life? Yes. Um, Wow. So, you know, at Laureus, we are in a bit of a transition. You know, I've been at Laureus for a couple of years, and... And we've really focused on growing the organization kind of from the ground up and creating greater value for the industry as a whole around this idea of sport for good and at the same time creating additional programs, assets. So from a program development standpoint, from a sector development standpoint, we've been really focused on doing both at the same time, a little bit of Uh, flying the airplane while you're building it, you know? And now we're, you know, we really feel like we have a breakthrough sport for good formula where we bring together youth and community assets in our model, which includes, you know, grant making and technical assistance and capacity building and research and collective impact uh, and a new membership model as well. And then we have a, a unique ecosystem of allies that, are helping us address these changes and uh, and challenges that are facing youth in our underserved communities. So, you know, simply put, I think we're a bridge for collaboration among sport and youth development organizations, and we're also a destination for funders and researchers and policymakers, all of whom, you know, together we want to foster hope in, in youth and foster hope in communities that, you know, that have a predictable future if you look at the statistics, but that you can have them rise above that through the power of sport. I think what's interesting about what you are all doing is that you're not sort of just dropping a big check somewhere. You are so involved in the community and, as you said, bridging the different organizations that are working there. Absolutely. And that seems really important in terms of, you know, like one of the things I liked is that you talk about coaching and how important coaching is and finding female coaches and supporting the development of those, those coaches. Absolutely. And we understand, we did a, a study this year, actually, it was a global study around empowering girls and women through sport for development. And certainly the coach is important in all of these programs. And we, we place coaches in over 100 cities around the country through Uplast and Playworks, two of our, our large national grantees. And that's important because having that caring adult in these children's lives, where oftentimes it's a single parent home or um, they, they just, that single parent may have to, you know, work three jobs just to keep a roof over their heads. And so they, having another caring adult in their life, a destination to go to where not only we get to get to play a sport that they love and, and, and develop in that way, but have the other mentoring that happens through that coach, the, the um, obviously the, the wraparound services on educational job readiness and 
and physical and mental health and development, all important. And what we find out for girls is that girls tend to drop out of sport at three times the rate of boys in this middle school age group. And so by having a female coach in the program, having those programs end up being more sticky. Girls tend to stay in those programs um, at a higher rate than they do with a male coach. And so, you know, studies are showing that. And I think it's because, you know, having that female role model, the girls also being nurtured to be peer coaches and then, you know, have the goal to, to be a coach like their, their female coach, they kind of see themselves kind of this evolution. And the, the women, I think, have programs that draw and engage the girls in ways that, uh, that are different from boys. What I was saying was that for boys, sometimes you just need the ball and a, and a stick and they're fine. You know, you can just, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just happy to be playing. And girls sometimes, if they haven't had a sport experience younger in their lives, then, then having um, a little bit more attention to the ways that you engage them so they don't feel, um, my daughter was talking about a young couple of girls that are trying out for the volleyball team at the high school. She's entering high school in the fall and they're starting their workouts. And she said, boy, she said, I'm so happy I have some volleyball experience um, and I'm not learning the sport at the same time as I'm trying out. Mm. And she felt very fortunate. Girls have a low, lower self-esteem. Boys kind of feel like, whatever, you know, I'm just going to play the sport. If I'm not good, fine. If I'm good, fine. And girls, if they enter, they, they feel, uh, have a low self-confidence. And so if you're able to work on skills first instead of playing the game, or you work on the skills that you need in order to be able to throw, as opposed to just starting, you know, trying to throw a ball across the field in softball. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There's a development aspect to ensuring that girls feel confident and assured as they're playing the sport so that they don't just drop out just because they feel inadequate, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about, because I know Laureus is looking to expand, move into new cities. So how does that process work? Right. So just the background, we, about four years ago, embarked upon three and a half, uh, uh, an experiment, if you will. We had been doing uh, placing and training coaches uh, around the country Primarily, we've done some smaller grant making, um, from a place based standpoint in New York. Um, but we thought, you know, the lessons we've learned in, and this is before my time actually with Laureus, but the lessons they'd learned in these programs in which they'd placed these coaches and seen programs on the ground, they thought, and funding them, you know, all over the, all over the world, quite frankly, through our, our global partners, we just thought, you know, if we could take a place-based approach and really go deep in one community, what, what impact might we have? And so we created Sport for Good New Orleans, where we were able to be a grant maker first, as we always do, leave with, with some resources. But more importantly, we built a coalition of organizations uh, kind of requiring that they partner together, where they normally see one another as competitors for the same resources. We thought... Um, you know, we'll add resources to the pot so they don't feel competitive. And then we'll add another set of resources that requires them to work together to find solutions to some of the challenges that they're having as nonprofits in that community and add to that 
um, a broader coalition of cross-sector partners from the city, the parks and rec, the corporate sector, other nonprofits, to see if we can't make the pie bigger and grow the impact. And sure enough, you know, these organizations have found that by working together, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, that they are collectively serving, you know, five times more kids than they were when they started, that they, you know, obviously share best practices, and we are able to uh, create a, a pot of money that when they identify a challenge that's uh, common to all of them, to help them, you know, create uh, a solution for that. And they've also individually and collectively drawn new and, and additional resources to their efforts. And so with that model being so successful, we thought, you know, let's see if we can't grow it. And so we went to Atlanta first, and we launched Sport for Good Atlanta in July of 2017. And it's a similar model as New Orleans. We have staff on the ground there. Uh, we're doing grant making with, you know, five to ten organizations. In fact, in Atlanta, I think, because we have some one-year grants and some three-year grants, it's about 14 or 15 organizations. And uh, built the larger coalition. We, they collectively have created key groups to work on various aspects and challenges that they're all commonly facing. We're partnering with the school system there, uh, in particular, to find education, have impact in education. And we're focused on a very small geography in New Orleans. It's not that big a city, um, so it's, it's easier to kind of have a broader geographical footprint. In Atlanta, it's a humongous city, and so we're focused on the west side, which is just in the shadow of Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And Mercedes-Benz USA has been very instrumental in funding both of those cities. New York, um, we launched in January under a different model. And we have created and launched the Sport for Good League, which is an association that uh, we hope will grow as an opportunity for professional development and engagement and um, mentoring and um, access to resources, both locally and nationally, where people in this sector, in this sports-based youth development sector or sport for good in the broader context, are able to find those resources. You know, most of us belong to some association or another, and for any industry out there, there's an association, either professional society or a trade association that you can belong to and be a part of as a company, organization, or individual. And so we're, we're trying to be that for this sector. And so the, the New York one, we're partnering with Nike. That's that one. We're doing some grant making. We have our a leadership council that's local, um, tapping into local leadership in that way that are helping us figure out how we're going to do collective impact in New York City. But in the meantime, we're providing all kinds of resources, everything from first aid to financial counseling to, uh, you know, pure professional development around coach training, coach development, et cetera. So, you know, there's kind of two different models we're working with now. And our goal ultimately is to have 20 Sport for Good cities by the end of 2020. That's so great. Uh, you talked about challenges when you first start working with a city. What have been some of those challenges? And particularly maybe focus on the challenges that girls are facing. So I think that, um, you know, resources. We, we've done our first data support for good report 
in January. We released it, and we are updating that and partnering with George Washington University to release the second one the day of our Laureate Summit on July 18th in L.A. And you know, it really highlighted that access to resources is probably the number one challenge that these organizations are facing. And with that, they usually have a waiting list for kids that want to be in the program. So not only are they not able to do probably all the, the things that they want to do for the kids they're currently serving, but they got a waiting list of kids that are knocking on the door that, that need their help. And so access to resources, the monitoring and evaluation that these organizations need to, to do, the rigor uh, with which they need to evaluate, talking about data earlier, um, evaluate their impact and prove their impact and communicate their impact. And we always provide those services to the organization to help them be able to, to measure and communicate and report out the impact, which in turn gives, gives them greater access to the funding that they need. Um, transportation is always an issue. You know, access to facilities, be they outdoor facilities or indoor facilities. Um, and then, you know, for girls in particular, we talked about the fact that, you know, there's some often some cultural uh, hurdles that those girls have to get over with, you know, participating in sport in the first place. Uh, they're often late to the party um, and don't start at four and five and six years old like sometimes boys do. And so just ensuring that you understand uh, where the girls are coming from, where they're starting, to ensure you meet them where they are. What are your big vision goals? Like, you know, 10 years from now, what would you like to see these programs doing? So I think for us, the big vision is to truly, um, you know, support that there it is a resource, I think, that people see a great way for kids to stay physically active and understand. I think now, as with Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign and, and many others with the CDC and other elsewhere, many organizations are talking about access and talking about the, the physical benefits of sports participation. I think we're starting to talk more about the social and emotional development of kids, the mental health aspects and benefits participation in sport but I think it goes beyond that it goes beyond that for the youth that are participating and it goes beyond that for the communities and our our mission statement is to improve the lives of youth and unite communities through the power of sport and it's a it's bifurcated for a reason because we understand that the way that sports can help improve lives if you use it intentionally to do so is the life skills that the kids learn and it's certainly the social emotional development and health. It's the um, mental health and physical health, but it's also with the wraparound services that these organizations provide, it's the educational outcomes that are improved. It's the employment outcomes and, and opportunities that come out of that. It's the community impact. So I was thinking the other day, because uh, I live in the D.C. area, seeing the Washington Capitals uh, and I, we watch more hockey in my house in the past couple of weeks than we've ever collectively as a family ever um, and enjoyed every minute of it. And, you know, just cheering our home team and, and uh, watching them, you know, skate to victory. And I tell you what, I was never downtown at the game, but when they had home games, the stadium obviously was packed in a sea of red and outside 
from Chinatown around Capital One Arena. It was just a sea of fans. And same thing with the parade a, a couple of days ago. And, you know, in that crowd, right, are tall people, short people, white people, black people, rich people, poor people. Like, it's, you know, all mix of, you know, Muslim people, Christian people. It, nobody cares. We're all Caps fans, right? And sport has a way to unite people, and this is our founding patron's you know, words, you know, uh, sport can unite people in a way that Lil Wolf does. And that uh, ability to unite people, whether it's Friday Night Lights or it's cheering for your favorite professional team or it's going to, you know, a soccer tournament with your kid, it is an ability to bring people from across all socioeconomic, racial, cultural, gender barriers and bring them together through the power of sport. And so talk about big vision. The big vision is for, you know, this idea that, you know, Mandela said sport can create hope or once there is only despair. And I touched on that earlier, but it's really this idea to use sport to create hope in these communities, to create hope in these kids' lives where they can see a positive future where, you know, the predictable future of becoming high school dropout, you know, twice the graduation rate if you're participating in these programs. So getting involved with the juvenile justice system, you have a 40% less likely to get involved with the juvenile justice system if you're involved in one of these sport forget programs, um, of becoming obese, of, you know, not addressing, you know, your mental health issues and having uh, better outcomes related to job readiness, work readiness, employment outcomes. And, and all of those things not only help these kids, but it has great effect and impact on the communities in which they live. And so that's what we want. We want a recognition of the fact that something that's right in front of our faces, this idea of sport and sport participation, goes beyond the obvious into this idea of creating a hopeful future for youth and impacting the communities. Wow, that's great. Do you have a favorite success story? Yeah, I do. There's a guy named Sky Hyacinth, and he was a basketball player, played at UConn, and um, grew up in in the New York City area and uh, moved around from from home to home, really under family, under-resourced, and uh, kind of that typical story, right? But when he found the sport of basketball, found an opportunity to you know, to grow outside of the classroom, always a good student, but able to participate in something that he loved, but that took him places that he otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to go. Hence the full scholarship to play basketball at UConn, graduated with three, worked, you know, in New York City and, and marketing, and, you know, kind of got out of his circumstances, right? And to having a, a, a healthy, wonderful life. And, had a friend playing for the Pelicans and went down to New Orleans to, to see him and ended up, you know, as basketball players do on a, you know, in a pickup basketball game with some young kids running around and went back the next day to the same court and the next day to the same court and realized that, you know, I can have an impact if I could put a program together that could serve kids like I was when I was a youngster. So he created an organization called Elevate New Orleans and, that organization provides basketball training to young kids pretty much, I mean, from ages of probably six to eight all the way up through high school. 
And in the past four or five years, since he's had the program, every kid that's gone through his program and graduated has gone on to get a college scholarship in basketball or an, ac- and or an academic scholarship. Wow. And there are many of them, there's uh, one or two of them that are kind of tops in the nation in, in, um, in the sport, most of the girls, a couple of girls, a couple top top 10 in the country. And so not only is he getting great basketball training, but he provides tutoring and other educational services, test prep and all of that happening. The gym is here and there's a classroom adjacent to the gym. So you either, you know, break them in half, half them go to tutoring for the first half and then they go to basketball or flip it. And you can't get on the basketball court that day if your grades aren't right. You can't get on the basketball court that day if you haven't finished your homework. And so if you haven't studied for the test yet. And so the, the basketball is a carrot, which they all want because the, they love the sport and they're good at it. But the only access they have is if they're doing well. And so it, one reinforces the other. And he's had some really great success. And, you know, his organization, he had to start a nonprofit from scratch. And so he will tell you that the coalition that's been around him in New Orleans of these organizations, the best practices that we provided, the uh, organizational support, professional development that we've provided as his organization's gone from a small, teeny startup to all the growing pains that anybody would have creating, not understanding nonprofit law, not understanding tax laws and all this other kind of stuff to help give him that guidance and support has been invaluable to him. Mm-hmm. Wow. Do you have any areas where you're really struggling to find a fix? I would say um, we probably do the least in around this idea of employment. And and I say we, I mean that to say the programs that we fund and support. A lot of the new education, obviously, the health and wellness component is there just through the fiscal participation. I think the community unity and social cohesion factor is happening through the teamwork and the diversity and inclusion and social and emotional development. All of that is, is I think, happening. One program that we did in, in Atlanta recently, we called Going for the Goal, Getting Work Ready, and where we brought in um, several youth from the West Side community, 15 or 20 of them, I think, and did some job training for a day. And then the organization, the company that's doing the concessions for the Atlanta United soccer team hired them at, you know, $15, $18 an hour to do concessions, work concessions during the games. And so these kids are they making more money than they've ever made in their lives, probably more money than their families have made in their lives. And so it's having, you know, an impact, direct impact, economic impact on their families. And job training and the, the, the employer got kids not only that had some job training in that day, but that were pre-qualified, right, because they were already great participants in the programs that we were funding. They were they were already good team members. They were already had the discipline. They already had the ability to listen to a, an adult, a figure in their lives. And so they came with the requisite skills and personality and um, I think attitude. And they just needed the job training and the opportunity, which we provided to them. So we're, we're going to be definitely scaling that program across the different corporate cities. Mm-hmm. 
you're a good person since you were able to segue your own athletic gifts into actual work. So, so it's a good model. Absolutely. Yeah. I read also that you are on the International Olympic Committee Women in Sport Commission. I am. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. I hadn't realized that that existed. So I'm excited about that. What are you working on right now? One of the, you know, ideas around the safe sport is, um, you know, harassment sport and reducing that is is important. And so most recently did a study with the Athletes Commission that was released back in, I guess, when we had our meeting in November. And that was a pretty big, pretty big deal. It's on the IOC website. I'm almost positive now. And so that was a real important thing. I am also on the selection committee for the Women in Sport Awards that we give out every year to individuals and organizations that are advancing gender equity in again in their sport or their organization and so that's a, a fun thing i've done to be my fourth year fourth straight year being on the selection committee mm-hmm. and i really enjoy it because i get to see the great work that's happening across the world and across sometimes their olympic committee sometimes their IAFs or national governing bodies and oftentimes it's a, a lone ranger uh, that's just doing really great work in their community in you know Nigeria or Japan, um, sometimes even in the United States. The website is pretty comprehensive. Uh, one thing that I did think about is that you know women do really well in the Olympics, and it's one opportunity where they get a lot of media coverage and they get you know fans. You know what about the years between those Olympic years, and is the Olympic Committee thinking about that at all? Yeah. Um... I, I'm really proud of the U.S. women's hockey team for standing up for themselves in the last couple of years. I, I don't know all the details. What I do know is that they were making a small amount of money as national team members. It was covered a, a short period of time throughout the year, only when they were kind of engaged on the team. The rest of the time they weren't making anything. Not really professional opportunities for them to, to play in the United States. Uh, to any great degree. And so, you know, they threatened to boycott the world championship team, 2017, and and said, look, we're, you know, unless you guys can come to the table with a better package for us as far as our salary and our benefits and treat us more on par with how the men's team is being treated, especially since, you know, we are perennial medal winners at the World and Olympics, we, you know, we're not playing. And USA Hockey went to the, the next level team and they said, nope, we're not going to play either. And the next level team, they couldn't find any scrubs to play, you know. That was so great that they all united. They banded together and ended up getting the, the money that they needed. And, you know, it's just such an example of women banding together, standing for something, coming out victorious on the other end. But those those stories, unfortunately, I think are, too few and far between. And when I was at at the U.S. Olympic Committee, one of the programs I helped to revitalize, we, when I was running, we had this thing called the Olympic Job Opportunities Program. And at that time, I guess the U.S. Olympic Committee was very fortunate to be able to get jobs where the employer would allow an athlete to get paid full-time but work part-time. And I benefited from that through Tricor 
aerospace part-time engineer when I was competing. And so that waned away. Then they had a Home Depot program and that waned away. And then they were kind of, the program was kind of dormant for a while. So when I, I got there in 2013, we created the education program, which is important for athletes. You talked about transition. So part of this is what's happening in between time. And part of this is what happens after and how do you prepare for life afterwards? Because many of these, you know, if you're a badminton player in the United States or a fencer or, you know, I don't know, you can name any, any sport. There's many sports, Olympic sports, where you don't have a, a career after sport, after the Olympic Games. And so how do you ensure, A, you got the right education? You know, some of us in track and field or swimming or other sports, we have the good fortune of there's lots of scholarships out there for us to, to go to school and, for free. In many sports, you don't have the opportunity to have scholarships. So program and, and others like them ensure that, that athletes have an opportunity to, to go to school, to, to get mentored, to get uh, part-time jobs that prepare them for life between Olympics and so they can make a living while they're competing and training as well as for life after that sport. And in between time, you know, people don't always know, but there's all kinds of competitions. There's invitations usually for most of these sports all over the world. There's World Cups. There's World Championships in between uh, that athletes train for. For track and field in particular, there's something called the Diamond League at the IAAF, which is the international federation that oversees the sport around the world, uh, hosts. And so there's a series of 10 or 15 meets and a prize money, and there's a people get the most points at the end of the day, get even more prize money. So depending on the sport, some have no money, some have some, and the athletes uh, you know, toil away in between for that uh, 16 days of glory every four years. Before we wrap up, I'd love to hear what kind of physical activity you're doing these days. Uh, I'm sitting here in my in my workout clothes. I had intended to do my Tabata this morning, but I think I will do it right after, <laughs> right after this call. Um, I have found that uh, power walking works for me and Tabata. Those a combination of the two to get some strength and conditioning through the Tabata. You know, anywhere from eight minutes to eighteen minutes usually of uh, high intensity uh, interval training. And, you know, 30 seconds on, 10 seconds off of any activity. Sometimes I do a circuit where I'm doing all kinds of, you know, kind of calisthenics, if you will, sit-ups, push-ups, crawlers, you know, burpees, that kind of thing, because it's nice whole body conditioning. And then other times I use a medicine ball and some weights in between. Sometimes I'm on the bike and I sprint on the bike. But I do things that are low impact because my needs from hurdling are, not in the best shape. So <laughs> running is, is not uh, so much an option. I do some intervals every once in a while because I just like to sprint. And I do the what used to be my warm-up before a race is now my full workout through a Tabata-type situation. So that's me. It's not, a, you know, it's not all that sexy or interesting, but me helps me manage my weight and keeps me strong. Yeah. What's Tabata? Uh, it, it's, it is a type of high-intensity workout, and I think it was a Japanese guy, his last name was Tabata, mm. and he said that, you know, for, for someone to do a long, slow walk, you know, or even a moderately paced walk or run for 
45 minutes or an hour that you could get about the same conditioning if you did these short bursts of energy over a shorter period of time. Hmm. And so you get the same effects, cardiovascular effects, you get the same strength effects, if not better. So for me, A, being a sprinter, and B, being a busy working CEO mom, wife, Anytime I can cut it shorter, <laughs> I'm happy. So, yeah. you sort of mentioned your knees, and do you have like how do you feel about being an aging athlete? Have you thought about that? Oh, I hate it. <laughs> I absolutely hate it. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I, I, me too. And it's not so much the aches and pains. It's not so much the aches and pains. I just don't like my body. Like I just I like being strong and fit and, and slender and. People look at me and always ask, what do you work for? How do you work? And I look at my body and I think to myself, I got this pouch here and I got back fat and I got, you know, this cellulite where it once wasn't, you know. So you can't, I will never look like I did when I was an Olympic athlete. There's just no way to do that. And so, um, at least not with my life the way it is now. So it's okay and I'm, I'm fine with it. I don't have low self-esteem over it, but that part is just hard. I'm sure this is how aging actresses feel. You know, they find, they see their movies once when they were just the most gorgeous thing in the world. And now they're, you know, not the same, <laughs> don't look the same. They're still gorgeous. They're still gorgeous, but they're not young and gorgeous. You right. know what I mean? Right. Um, and so the thing is, you can't, you, you can't be a 20, you know, three-year-old Olympic gold medalist. Uh, you, you know, I'll be the gold medalist for the rest of my life, but I won't be 23. So right. it's, uh, it's, it's worse, I think, for us because we're, we was once this wonderful specimen, physical specimen, <laughs> and now we're not. And it's it's hard. It's hard. And then you have the aches and pains on top of it. It's like, really? I remember I had my daughter. Uh, she's 14 now. And uh, I went to, you know, I'm a checkup. I don't know, six months or a year or something like that. I think it was probably the year checkup. And after Isaiah, five years earlier, I you know, the weight just dropped off and I just kept on moving, right? With Maya, I was 42 years old when I had her and I was struggling to lose the weight. And I talked to doc, doctor, the OB. I was like, yeah, and he said, how's it doing? I was like, I'm fine. I said, I'm just having a much harder time shaking the weight off. And I said, you know, at this point, you know, it's not baby fat anymore. It's bonita fat, you know? <laughs> and he said, you know, I just, I have, a, I have something to tell you. So what is he said? The older you get, the harder you have to work for less reward. Ugh. And I just thought to myself, that is the antithesis of an athlete, right? I mean, we work hard. We expect to see results. And the harder we work, the more results we get, right? The faster you run, the more weight you lift, the, you know, the better, you know, you shoot or whatever it is. Like, you, you're it's supposed to be some... Uh, relevant to the work you put in and the results that you get. And what he's telling me is I can work hard all I want, but I have to work even harder and I'm going to get less results than I expected to get or that I used to get. So I'm, uh, yeah, that's the aging athlete and it's difficult psychologically, physically. Um, but you know what? I'm happy to be here. Happy to have my health and my wonderful family and this great job. And, uh, I just count my blessings. Yep. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. It's really wonderful. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. A big thank you to Allison and Amrav Lorius for reaching out to me and making this episode happen. Thanks to you for listening. Tell your friends about the podcast. 
Here, her sports was started to increase media coverage of female athletes and women in sport. 44% of athletes are women, yet only 4% of media coverage is about women. That's not a number, it's a rounding error. Spread the word about fantastic, strong women speaking up and doing amazing things. Please subscribe on iTunes and encourage people you know to do the same. It really does help more people to find the podcast. Thank you to Agnes Studio, the blog She Rides Her Bike, Gold Mines, and Leap Strategies for super support and partnership. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye-bye. All right. I, I kick the dog out. I close <laughs> the door. I have the headphones on. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Cherie Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.